0: for us in the community, we'd greatly appreciate that. Maybe at your work, maybe if you go to a place, you know, a diner frequently or something, you can take those in for us. If everybody takes three or four, we could just paint the whole town with these things and it'd be pretty awesome. So let me know. Okay. It's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Dads, we love you. Dads, what a great responsibility we have, right? The Bible speaks about how... uh, what a, what a privilege it is to be called the children of God because, well, God is our Father. He's the eternal Father, the everlasting Father. And as dads, we get to share, not completely, but a glimpse of what that's like. The Bible speaks about how uh, children are a heritage from the Lord, blessed is a man who has a quiver full of them. And whether you have one arrow in your quiver or 10 arrows in your quiver, um, either way, you are blessed. And children are indeed um, a joy to have, right? I mean, kids are amazing. Kids, they all together, they send you on the highest of highs and and they rip your heart out all at the same time, right? Last night, Ellie had to go to the ER. Nothing serious. She just, we looked at her in the middle of the day and we're like, half your face is swollen. What happened? And so she went to the doctor and it's just those, moments where Sarah took Ellie to the ER and I stayed at home with Ethan and I'm like the whole time thinking like man what is wrong I'm going through the whole day and I'm like this is crazy what if it's this what if it's that you know um, for for Sarah who took uh, her to the pediatric ER at Upstate which is an awesome facility but it's where they have it is the fourth floor which used to be the children's oncology unit so Sarah had to take Ellie into one of the old rooms that Ethan had to be examined in when he was going through his treatment. So there's sort of that, you know, flashback, memory, sort of anxiety that kind of creeps in a little bit. And what, what I'm, why I'm sharing this is to let you know that, you know, being a dad involves all of that. It's watching your kid take a first step, ride a bike, use the stove, say something the way you would say it. You ever have that happen, dads? Your kids say or do something exactly like you and you're like, oh my gosh. I remember now, I didn't grow up with my biological father. I grew up with my stepdad, but I remember la- later in years going and, and watching my dad, uh, my biological dad, do something. And I thought, oh man, I, I've done that same exact thing just like that. Like, I inherited that from him. So weird. See, being a dad today, not just being a father, not just reproducing, but actually loving another human being and rearing them and mentoring them. Whether you're, they're your biological son or not or daughter or not is really irrelevant. But when, you've placed, when you're placed in that position by the Lord, you gotta understand he's placed you there knowing that you are gonna carry part of, part of his title. You are representing him to your children until they get old enough to realize, oh, I gotta take God's hand. I wanna pray for you, dads. before we go any further. Um, that in and of itself, is enough to keep me awake at night. Like, man, I got, my kids see me and, and what they know about God, they know because of me right now. And either, either I'm, a, I'm a good example or a bad example to them right now. I really want us to be good examples to, to our own children and to the children of this church. Next time you see these kids run around, realize we're gonna watch them get married someday. We're gonna watch them have kids someday. We're gonna, we're gonna be here while they teach Bible studies and while they preach sermons and lead worship and lead the children and lead women's ministry and men's ministry and, and, and do all kinds of things. They will be the ones doing that in a, in a very short amount of time. What are we going to do to make sure they're ready for that? Dads, that's our responsibility. I mean, moms, you guys already knock it out of the park. I, we prayed for you, you're good. And, and nine times out of the 10, you're making sure us dads you know stay on our toes. But dads, we gotta step up. We gotta be the ones. We've gotta lead. We've gotta love our wives and love our children and lead them in the way that Jesus said is the way he loves his church, laying down his life for it. So let's pray together. Lord, I pray for the dads today. It's Father's Day. And there's no other title in all of the word, Lord, that I think scares me more about you. Because as dads, now we kinda share that responsibility. Not that, you know, we take it from you and then, you know, we're on our own, but you allow us this privilege to be dads and I wanna pray for the dads here today, Lord. None of us are perfect. None of us are, are, are 100% always on and, and doing the right thing or saying the right thing, but Lord, we need your help. The dads here, Lord, I pray for them, myself included. I pray for us that you would help us to be the men of our families and our communities to lead them in a way that is exemplary of who you are, that shows that you're a loving, kind uh, disciplining father, a father who cares so much about his kids. He doesn't allow them to just do anything, but make sure that they are contained and, and protected within the confines of your boundaries, Lord. All that to say, Lord, you are a loving, kind father, and we want to be the same way. We want to lead and love like you lead and love, but we need your help to do so. Lord, I pray for the dads today. Give them all the strength, pour it out on on their heads, Lord, all of the provision, all of everything that they need to lead their kids and the kids of this church. May we be an example to the community in Jesus' name, amen. All right, that being said, turn to John chapter three, verse 11. And I'm going to uh, pull up my sermon because I pulled up Wednesday night's Bible study so that's not gonna do us any good. Uh, again, like I said, we're professionals, and uh, no, we're not. The good news is that God takes people, clay, and makes them into good things, amen? All right. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was uh, of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Let's pray, Jesus. Your word is good. Uh, This particular part of the word is very harsh, very blunt, and we're not trying to skirt around that, Lord. We... We thank you for it. That you deal with us, that you love us, and that you uh, are blunt enough with us to show us our error so that we might be disciplined and be disciples and be more like you. So I pray for that today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um uh, did you catch the word murder? Murderer in there a couple times? You know, when you read the Bible verse and when you you know you go to the Bible bookstore and you see the Bible book covers and the t-shirts and the and the the bumper stickers and the license plate covers and just all of the swag that they have that you can get. You never see verses like this. You never see the ones that mention murder. And honestly, when was the last time you heard heard about Cain? He's not a hero of the Bible. He's not a guy that we look to as an example of what it's like to live like Jesus. We would consider him in the, uh, if you divide everybody into good guys and bad guys, we would consider him a bad guy spoiler alert, in the Bible, there's one good guy, his name's Jesus, the rest of us are bad guys, but just to use our own human mind frame, good guys and bad guys. I'm wearing today a, a Batman shirt, I don't know if you can see that, it's got little bats all over it. Um, very much believe that dads, when they are filled with Jesus and love him, they do indeed become superheroes, and uh, they are superheroes to their family, to their children, to their community. And so, um, in the Bible, there are what we would call good guys and bad guys and Cain's a bad guy. But today he's our case study to understand our nature outside of God or, 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 or apart from God, our nature within God and how the world views us. You know, Pastor Mike's not here, but I'm very thankful for the word he brought last week that we are a new creation in Christ. We, our identity is different now that we know Jesus. We might, we might still sin our proclivity might still be to sin, but that's not who we are. When God looks at us, he no longer sees sinner, he sees saint. And we fail and we fall, but that's not who we are anymore. Now before Christ, that's indeed who we are. Without Jesus, we are indeed a sinner. That's our identity, sinner. But once we meet Jesus, once, once he changes us and makes us what the Bible says, a brand new creation, That's not who we are anymore. You might feel like a sinner. The world may call you a sinner. Satan will certainly accuse you of being a sinner, but that's not who you are. And so, message last week, who do you think you are? Do you think that you are a sinner? Do you think that you are a saint? Do you think that God loves you? Do you think that God hates you? That greatly affects how you operate from day to day. John continues though and says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Elsewhere in this book, John will say, you know, I'm not really giving you a new command. Here's the thing about Jesus, he's, he's consistent. He's holy, yes. He's pure, he's loving, he's kind, he's, he's strong, he's fierce, he's, he's a warrior, he's a king, he's a friend. But he's also consistent. Hebrews 13 and eight says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you know, when we rip a verse out of its context, we, we can kind of err. Now, with this verse, it's kind of hard. I'm sure there's somebody out there who's made a really bad mess of this verse by ripping it out of context. But, but let's read it in context just for a moment to get the full idea of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Verse seven says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today And forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. The writer of Hebrews doesn't just say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, Look, the message is always the same. And look at the life of your leaders. What does their life look like? Do they preach one thing and say another? Do they say this should happen and it only happens to them but it never happens to you? All Christians should be wealthy but only the pastor seems to be wealthy, nobody else? All Christians should be uh, healthy but only he seems to be healthy, everybody else keeps getting sick? Or if he gets sick, there's always another reason why? The writer of Hebrews says, look, what was taught from the beginning is taught today and will be taught tomorrow. You might hear go online, go, you know, read a book, something like that. You might hear something that seems relatively new. You'll read it and go, why doesn't everybody know this? And and often it's because it's not true. If it isn't a teaching that's lasted the test of time, then maybe, maybe it's not of God. Maybe it's only been popular for 30, 50, 100, 200 years. But what, how did the first Christians who met Jesus teach the word of God? How did they proclaim Jesus to the people? I'm all about books, don't get me wrong. I'm all about men and women who meet Jesus and then write about him. I think that's an amazing thing. But when they go outside the boundaries of the word of God, they have done just that. They've gone outside the boundaries of the word of God. And if it's not something that we can verify or back up with the word, we hold it with an open hand or we don't touch it at all. We just go, you know what? You might have an interesting theory And maybe at the end we find out you were true, but this is not something that the Lord has given us to know for sure right here in this moment. I'll give you a real silly example of that. How tall is Jesus? Or how tall was Jesus? We have no indication. Was he five foot four? Was he six foot four? We don't know. Now somebody comes along and says they have a book that can tell you for sure how tall Jesus is or how tall Jesus was as he walked the earth as a man. I'd say, you know what, interesting theory. Bible doesn't tell us. And so I don't, you know, first of all, I don't care. Number two, okay. If the Bible and what the church has taught for thousands of years strays outside of the word of God, then we have no part in it. And you might have an interesting theory and you might have some book or you might have some ministry that teaches you secret knowledge, but I'm here to tell you, John is coming against that secret knowledge. That the Holy Spirit's coming against that secret knowledge and telling you that the same message you're hearing today is the same message that was preached the last week and the year before and the decade before and the century before. First John chapter three and the gospel message in its entirety is the same as Jesus is the same. I to me that is comforting. Have you ever been with somebody who's wishy-washy or flighty or flaky? One minute they're like oh, and the next minute they're like ah. Oh. Like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take over the world. And the next thing you know, they're huddled up in a corner in a ball like, oh, the world's going to end. Or they just say they're going to do all these things and they never do. Just, it's very, like, it just tugs at your heart because like, it's like being in a car, going back and forth, like swerving to the left, swerving to the right, swerving to the left, swerving, and you're like, I, I, I can't, I don't have any bearings. I'm just, I'm discombobulated. I don't know what is going on. But have you ever been around somebody who's, who's like a rock You can meet them today, a year from today, five years from today, and they'll more or less be the same person. They may not be perfect, they may not be awesome, but they're consistent. Even in their error, even their flaw, you just know how they're going, that's them. They are consistent and and there's a comfort in that. Knowing what to expect from another person, knowing what to expect as much as you can, uh, their nature never catches you by surprise in the sense that... um, they're up one minute down the next. Now Jesus, as much as he can be known, he has given us the consistency to know him. The word tells us, reveals to us him and his nature. Like for instance, did you know that Jesus took naps? I love that. Father's Day, if you guys get a nap today, and, and, and moms, kids, give your dad a nap today, if for no other reason, just, just for tradition's sake. Naps are a glorious thing. I don't think we nap enough in this country I'm not talking about being lazy, I'm talking about working, doing your work, but then taking a little nap in the middle of the day. Like, the kind of nap where you wake up and you don't know what year it is. Like that kind of a nap. That's the kind of nap that I think Jesus took, uh, and see that's, if I wrote a book, I could probably write a book on that, but I'm speculating here. Jesus was in a boat and his disciples, they were freaking out because there was a storm, and they they said Jesus was down in the bottom of the boat napping. He was on a pillow. He was just dead tired, so he went to sleep. It's a good thing to rest yourself. It's a good thing to, to take naps. Uh, so we can derive from that, you know, it's not gonna be, a, a, a we're not gonna have a nap ministry, although that could be a thing. But here's the thing, we go back to the word of God, okay, w- naps aren't necessarily a bad thing. Sleep is not a bad thing. Some folks, they look at you, if you don't you sleep less than four hours a day and you're not working the other 20, they look at you like you've got two heads. I'm like, I'm not advocating anybody be lazy, but man, you gotta rest your body. The Lord gave us a whole day, a whole day to rest. And so I think that, that he considered it pretty important for us to, to rest our physical bodies every once in a while. But going back, Jesus is this foundation that's solid. It's rock. In, in California, I sold real estate, and um, a real estate friend of mine, he was looking at a house. He was looking at two different houses, and one was built on the side of a mountain, um, beautiful house, uh, just beautiful view, um, and then he went to go see another one that was built on sand, and he said he got to look at the foundation, it was cracked. The foundation was cracked because the foundation for the foundation was sand, so everything shifted and eventually it just broke. But the one that was built on the rock of the mountain, it was solid. That thing wasn't going anywhere. No cracks, no compromise, solid. Jesus is our solid foundation and that consistency makes him a solid foundation. We know that Jesus will be the same tomorrow as he is today as he was yesterday. He will not like the things he doesn't like tomorrow the same way he doesn't like them today. He will approve and love the things that he loves today. He loves you with a love that transcends the day. You sin today, he'll still love you tomorrow. And that's not license to sin, that's license to repent. But let's go back to our verse our case study is a man named Cain. And um, here's what I love about the Bible. It just gets right out there. If you, read, if you start like a Bible reading plan in Genesis, and you're like, oh, in the first chapter, you know, and God created and it was good, and God did this and it was good. And then you get to chapter two and what happens? And you get to chapter three, Adam and Eve fall, like almost right out of the gate. It's like, it's like you put a kid in a room with a vase and within 30 seconds, they broke it. Like it's just, they, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. It was perfect. It was good. And then they broke it. And so they go out, the, part of their, you know, the curse begins and man has now fallen. Well, Eve has a child. She names him Cain. I love my children the same. I do. But the first kid gets stuff the second kid doesn't get, right? Here's what I mean by that. The first kid, everything's new. Everything, Changing diapers, giving baths, feeding. By the time you have the second, third, and fourth, it's all like, it's all muscle memory. You know exactly what to do. You know what things, you know, time takes. You know, even, even if they poop all over you, you're like, yeah, okay, just wipe it off. Like you just, you, you, you understand. But that first one, everything's brand new. And for Adam and Eve, the first one was indeed the first one. And they, and they celebrated and they were happy. And they, you know, as much as you can imagine, it was a, a joyous time. Genesis chapter four, verse one says, now Adam, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, uh, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Basically, he ain't my kid. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Only 12 verses, but in 12 verses, Adam and Eve have a son, have another son, and within a matter of years, the oldest son kills the younger son. I marvel at this story because at the time of the story, there is no Levitical priesthood, there's no temple worship, there's no sacrifice. The only thing that they know is Adam and Eve and God making the sacrifice by killing animals and taking those cloths and covering up their nakedness. That's all that these two boys know. And in the same way that I think that Adam misconveyed God to Eve, I think the same thing has happened with his children. I think Abel somehow picked up that I should bring these animals to sacrifice for my sin. But Cain either was obstinate or just didn't get it. And then when the time came to repent, instead of repenting, he, repenting, he sought vengeance. Think about the ironic twist in there that instead of bringing an animal to sacrifice, he sacrifices his brother. This ultimate shaking of the fist in God's face. God warned him, look, sin's waiting for you. It's crouching at your door. Its its desire is to consume you. You've got to rule over it. And so what does Cain do? Okay, I'll rule over it by killing my brother. This is human nature, unbridled, unfettered. If we think, oh, I'll just go over here and then none of these things will happen, realize at this point, all we know is there are four humans on the earth and 25% has just been murdered. Well, what the heck is John bringing up Cain for? It's a bit of a downer. Number one, and you're not gonna like this, but your sin is your fault. Now, some of you have been sinned against, and that's not what I'm speaking of. Some of you have been abused. Maybe you've been the victim of sexual abuse. Maybe you've been the victim of verbal abuse. Maybe you've been the victim of physical abuse. Maybe you've been neglected. I'm not speaking to that right now. That is sin that has been committed against you and of that you most likely bear no fault. Um, When someone makes you a victim, sin in its nature makes a victim of somebody. And in that regard, you are a victim. And I'm not speaking to that today. What I'm speaking of is the things that we do that we are guilty of. I would love to stand here and say, you know, it's Satan who does it. Satan did it, blame him. Make him the scapegoat for our actions, but here's the truth, he plays a role in it. He entices and tempts us, but the Bible's clear that it's our fault. What we've done, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And as we look at the story of Cain and Abel, Cain had opportunity to not go that route. He had opportunity to do what was right. I'm sure that you know, we just kind of get the, the brief description of what happened. I, I wonder if he, if he told the Lord, I had to do it. It was my only choice. There was no other option. There's always another option. There's always something else. There's always a back door that maybe we don't see right away, but that's part of, that's part of fleeing from sin and youthful lust is, is as you run, as you flee, you often find those, the, the way out by doing so. But here's the gospel message of Jesus. While you are responsible for your sin, God is responsible for your salvation. And so God has sent his son Jesus to die on your behalf to bear the penalty for your sin so that you're no longer a sinner, now you are a saint. And you stand there in the transaction going, I, I didn't do anything. And that's the point, you can't brag about that. Look how great I am, I give so much and I attend church so much and when I pray I do this and that and this and that. No, none of that has earned you salvation. Salvation is a free gift. It's an act of grace. And so today, if you are forgiven of your sin, it's not because you've done anything except put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus. And so, we at the chapel, we have this—we uh, try to have this healthy view of ourselves. We—we we are sinners saved by grace. We—we've committed these things, and and we need to, you know, make them right as much as we can, but ultimately our salvation was purchased by Jesus on the cross. It doesn't make what we've done right, but it makes what we've done forgiven. And if you've sinned against somebody, I would pray that you'd go back to them and and apologize. And they may never forgive you. And that's not really the point. The point is, are you going to seek their forgiveness? Cain felt justified in what he did. Oftentimes we feel justified in our sin. I'm here to tell you that to stand before Jesus, the only justification that we can hope in is the one that he provides for us through him. Now, why did Cain hate Abel? This is sort of the segue that John's working on to get us from Cain to another uh, subject. He hated Abel because Abel did what was right. The Bible tells us that the world hates Christians, not just because we're Christians, the world hates Christians because we love Jesus Christ. They hate us, not because we proclaim a, a, a title, but because we bear a name. Abel did what was right, Cain did not, and he hated his brother to the point of murder. We spoke about this a couple weeks ago. Satan hates you, and the world hates you. That's the, that's the addition to the team hate today. Um, and they feel justified in hating you. There's this show called The Handmaiden's Tale and it's on TV and I just blew your mind for two reasons. One, I know what The Handmaiden's Tale and number two, I own a TV. When you're like, Pastor Tony lives in a house with a table and he drinks water and bread all the time. I, don't, I hope I've never given off that vibe, but I indeed have a TV and, and running water in my house and electricity. And, you know, sometimes I eat ice cream and, and I know about things like the Hadman's Tale. And the Hadman's Tale, if you're not familiar with it, is this show, um, Apocalyptic America. America has fallen and, and this group has taken over and they've used stories of the Bible to enslave people. And throughout the series, you know, you have these women who are enslaved because they can have babies and other women can't. Anybody who fights against the system, you know, they're, they're hung and they're killed, they're executed, uh, gays and Jews and, and people who just come against uh, anything. And, 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 I, and I watched that and I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's an artistic interpretation of how some people view Christians. And then I thought, wow, you know, I, I'm glad that that's not really happening within the Christian faith. I wonder if there's any other faith where that actually does happen. I don't know, but I would, you know, I would hate for that to be happening, you know, somewhere around the world in entire states where that actually happens and it's not the fault of Christians at all. But that's how the world sees us sometimes. And they feel justified in that. I can only imagine there are people who watch this show and they go, yeah, that's how, that's how religious people are. And in religion, and especially as Jesus, because they ha- they're, they're not quoting other books, they're quoting the Bible. We should just get rid of it. They don't hate you today for any other reason than the name you bear. Now, let me give you a warning. Well, I'll get to that in a second. Let me, let me tell you what Jesus said. Behold, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour for it is not you who speak but the spirit of your father speaking through you brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in one town flee to the next for truly i say to you you will not have gone through all the towns of israel before the son of man comes a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, house Beelzebul, Satan basically, have, uh, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus gives, gives us this great prophetic promise uh, of his return, of the gospel going out, and that the world will hate us because of him. And that's okay. If you are following Jesus and you are in step with the spirit, as Galatians chapter five says, then the world will hate you and that's okay and we must move on with that. It's okay that Satan hates you, that the world hates you. It's not our job to gain their approval. It's our job to preach the gospel to them. And they can hate us all they want, but if they hear the gospel message, then we have done our job. Now, let me give you two warnings though. Because some of us are hated and then we transpose that hate Onto Jesus, meaning you're hated or you're disliked for an attitude or a mindset, and then when you're hated for it, it's like, oh, it's because I'm a Christian. No, 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 some of us, when we're jerks and we're hated for being a jerk, that's our fault. That's not what Jesus is speaking of. Are we being hated because of the name we bear or are we being hated because of something else? Hated because of Jesus? gonna happen. Hated for other things? The Bible says leave it, live as peaceably with his people as much as you can. So you have to, you know. Well, you know, I'm just gonna say this or post this. Well, are you creating a hatred towards yourself based on your opinions? I'm perfectly okay with people not liking me because I'm a Christian, but I don't want them to not like me because, oh, I like a certain brand of guitar or I like a certain type of humor or I like a certain meal now, I, don't, I don't wanna make somebody stumble because I feel the liberty to eat meat. If I'm with a person who only eats vegetables, well then, you know what? Bring me a salad. And, and, I'll, and I'll stop and get a cheeseburger on the ride home. Now, I'm not gonna cause you to stumble and make you hate me. Whether they're justified or not is not the point. I'm not gonna cause somebody to hate me over something as foolish as food. Now, when it comes to Jesus, you wanna hate me for that? Then that's okay. Am I conveying Jesus in love? Or am I being a jerk about that too? No, Jesus said, just, just bearing that name will be enough. Let's not use Jesus as a bat to beat people over the head with. Let's present them with Jesus in the same way that you present your kid with birthday cake. Have you ever had to coax your kid into eating birthday cake? Have you ever had to be like, come on, like maybe the one-year-old when his first birthday. I know with Ethan, we kind of had to encourage him because he's looking at this big glob of sugar and cake and he's like, oh, I don't, and we're telling him to put his hands in it and he was kind of like apprehensive but you know, go to a birthday party and you take your kids with you and it's like, don't put your hands on the cake. Don't go get the cake yet. You wait till they start serving the cake because they know that the cake is good and they wanna go get the cake. And so we present Jesus. Here's Jesus. If you present Jesus, if you just share him with people, they won't be attracted to him because you put a good spin on it. You're a good salesman. They will hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and they will repent and accept that offer of grace because Jesus is that amazing. First warning, don't be a jerk. I actually looked up Bible verses about being a jerk and there's plenty of them. I didn't bring them with me though. Number two, that's the first warning. Second warning, Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Hey, what's up? She heard you talking about cake. Oh. She thinks She has, she has cake. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's oh. probably what all the adults are thinking right now. I heard something about cake. Can we, is cake still involved? Yeah, a lot of disappointed people right now. Sorry, Soph. Um, Galatians one ten. for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That whole discourse there that Paul's getting into, he's bringing back the gospel to the Galatian church because false gospels have infiltrated and the people the proponents and the benefactors of that false gospel don't like it. And he's like, look, I'm not looking for the approval of men here. I'm looking to preach the gospel. I am looking to proclaim the truth and if there are men who don't like that, so be it. For those of you who are stuck in the bondage of the approval of men, I I wanna pray with you or pray for you, I want you to pray as well. You do not need to seek the approval of men as much as you think that you do. You do not need the approval of men when it comes to uh, your life. Some of you, you are in bondage to that and you need to be liberated from it. And it's quite simple. Um, Praying and seeking and fasting is involved. But other than that, you just need your brothers and sisters to lift you up. And I want to remind you that there are going to be people who just don't approve of you and that's okay. They won't like you and you can just bless them and release them and say, you know what? Maybe someday they'll see how awesome I am. But until then, I'm just gonna keep being awesome because Jesus loves me. Don't get stuck in, both of those are idols and idols are made for breaking. Go to the Old Testament. Anytime a good king rose up, one of the first things he did, start breaking idols. Start smashing Asherah poles. Start, start breaking those, down those high places that the people had put up to try to uh, improve upon the worship of God. So if you have idols in your life, get to smashing Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Matthew 5 and 21 verse 22 says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, some of your translations say raka, it means worthless. It's like being spit upon, which is like one of the worst things ever. Uh, to his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. How we treat others, especially those within the church, proclaims what we believe. If you claim to love your brother, but then act in a way that is hateful, we have shown truly what our heart is like. God has forgiven plenty of murderers. Moses, David, Paul, who wrote two thirds of the New Testament or or two thirds of the New Testament involved him or was written by him. These men were murderers. Moses took a man's life with his own hands. David and, and Saul who became Paul, they gave orders to have people killed. What's the difference between Cain, Paul, Moses and David? Cain never turned away. Cain never came back. He's the prodigal who left and never came back to his father. After the curse, he just cries out, oh, this is too much to bear, but he never comes back to God. And you might be saying, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never murdered anybody. I hope you've never murdered anybody. Not in the physical sense, but have we ever hated anybody? I've hated people. I hate saying that, but it's the truth. Generally, it's people who've wronged me, people who have things that I don't have, people that I don't, des- I don't feel deserve the blessings they have, you know, fleshy stuff. Not proud of it, but I'll tell you. And Jesus says, if that's your heart, that's murder. You haven't carried out the physical act, but the act has happened in your heart already. And John goes on to say, you know, murderers don't inherit the kingdom of God. They don't inherit eternal life. They don't have eternal life abiding in them. So what's what's the solution? What do we do? If everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, then what do we do? We repent. We go back. We ask for forgiveness. We ask forgiveness of the person. We ask forgiveness from the Lord. The person may never forgive us, and that's okay, but God will. Today, I hope the message you hear is man... This is who I am, but Jesus has made a way for it not to be me. There are a lot of folks, they don't like the church. Within, they're Christians, but they don't like the church. It's kind of like when a teenager doesn't like their family. I hate you, mom and dad. And they storm off to the room that their parents pay for, on the bed that their parents bought, with a snack that their parents paid for, using the Wi-Fi and the computer that their parents gave them. A lot of people in the church, I hate you, church not knowing that the church is there and was created for them to be a part of. The church is not perfect by any stretch of that word. But it's Jesus' job to be perfect and to perfect his church. There are many things that the church does and I cringe like, oh gosh, you you had to say or do that. You ever see the church signs on on Facebook and things like that, the hilarious things that churches put up? It's like some of them are really clever and other ones are just like, oh, it's like, Somebody has a dad joke book and they're just putting it, the, putting it out on the sign outside. Just cringe, oh. Or you know, you just, you just see, you go to a church's website and it, it looks like a five-year-old made it. And websites aren't important. I get that. What I mean is, you just cringe a little bit. Like, I mean, I just wish it looked professional. Like we do our best when, we have these flyers made up Like we made them, we got them professionally done because we wanted them to look like they were professionally done. I didn't want to look like I scribbled on a piece of paper. Here you go, come to church. Like we wanted them to like, oh, okay. These people are professionals. Then they come to church on Sunday and, and, and hear us mess up all the announcements and they go, oh, okay, it's not that professional. The son of God was murdered by man so that the sin of man could be murdered by the son of God. We might be guilty, but Jesus came to take our guilt. You may never be okay with the sin you've committed, and that's okay too. I just feel guilty for what I've done. Was it something bad? Yeah, okay. You shouldn't feel good about that. You shouldn't feel happy about your sin. You shouldn't protect it. You shouldn't, you shouldn't fight for it. You should lay that down and go, man, that, I should not have done, that was wrong. However, Godly guilt and satanic guilt are completely different things. Satan would seek to accuse you to make you continuously feel worthless. But godly guilt will remind you, Jesus is bigger than my sin. Jesus has taken my sin. Through the grave, he has swallowed up my sin. By the cross, he has washed away my sin. And so, my savior, is all the more saving. He's all the more glorious and magnificent in all the adjectives we use for him because I realize how horrible I am without him. If you're not okay with your sin, even forgiven sin, let it be fuel. Let it be the the wood on the fire of sanctification to purify you, to remind you of what Jesus has done and what he expects of us. To, to live these lives that exalt his name and serve others. We can't take this sin lightly. Well, I've never murdered anybody. Oh, of course we haven't. That's not the point. We've all hated somebody though, and that's the true, that's the true crux of all this. The world hates us, but we don't have that liberty to hate others. We don't have the liberty to hate them back. We don't have the liberty to hate the church. We don't have the liberty to hate our brothers and sisters in Christ. And John says, if that's what we're doing, then the word of God, God himself is not abiding in us. In the verse last week, when it spoke of our new identity, it says those who abide in Christ, they don't keep sinning. They don't keep practicing sin. Somebody who truly meets Jesus doesn't keep sinning at the same velocity as they did beforehand. It it starts to die. And it happens, but it's dying. And and you don't walk away from that feeling good about it. You don't walk away from that going, oh, liberty. It happens, you're like, why, you're filled with this, why did I do that? Why did I fail again? What is wrong with me? You don't celebrate the sin you're now in. It's still repulsive, it's still wrong, and you go back to, now, to stay there is incomplete. To go back to Jesus, I am sorry. I need your help to come back from this. I cannot do this of my own power. I cannot do this of my own will. I can't do this, period. But in you, all things are possible. In you, I can do this. In you, this is possible an attainable goal in my life. And so, if that's your prayer, the next thing to expect is fire. Fire, from what I have found in the metaphorical sense, is what the Lord uses to refine us. If there's something in our life that shouldn't be there, trials of fire come and help burn them up. It's consistent throughout the, it's consistent throughout the scriptures It's consistent throughout church history and it's everything we need. And if it will bring you to a place of sanctification, meaning you have been delivered from that particular sin, then you will look back and go, it was worth it. You won't look back and regret the things you've lost. You will look back and look at what you've gained and say it was worth it. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. See, when we hate somebody, it kind of exposes our unrighteousness, right? Sometimes we hate people and they don't even know it. But when we express that hatred, it doesn't show... Their faultiness, it shows ours. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So what's, ab- what's abiding in you today? What is, who has or what has taken up residency within you? I'm not asking if there's a fight. I'm not asking if there's a struggle. I just want to know who's there. It will greatly determine how you treat the church. And here's the spoiler. You can't fake it. We know. I know that you know whether I love you or not. And it goes both ways. If I'm always saying, oh, I love you so much, but then it seems like I hate you by what I do. You guys know, you guys it doesn't take discernment to know that. The word of God's already told us that. And it goes both ways. Well, I love his church. I just don't serve it or attend it or pray with it or go to it. It's just, well, do you love it? It's like, I love my wife, but I never spend any time with her. I never do anything for her. I never serve her. We're never in the same room. I cringe when she's around. I mean, it's like, you would eventually go, do you love your wife? Yeah, I love her. To, I love her to death. But, you know, I just can't stand her. Like, it doesn't make any sense. You'd go, no, that's not love. That's like a legal obligation. You're just afraid of losing half your stuff. I love my kids. I just never spend any time with them, and I never, you know, never do anything they want to do, and I'm always telling them to be quiet because they're too loud. And, really? Because kids are loud. I, I don't know if you guys know that. Spoiler alert. Kids get loud sometimes. Like, for no reason. Father, are you with me on that? Just, just scream for no reason. Ah! what's going on? Nothing. You're not dying? No. Sounded like you were dying. No, I'm not dying. You ever get the scream that sounds like they're dying and you rush in. what's going on? Ah, Mario fell into the hole. That's a video game. And yes, the pastor has a video game system as well. It's not a sin. I don't even know where I was going with any of that. Jesus loves you, let's just just leave it there. As much as we might fight him on that, as much as we may not feel worthy of that, I can't get around the fact that the word keeps telling us over and over and over again that he does. And so now that love, you know, we're not a bucket that just catches it, we're like a funnel, we catch it and we give it out to other people. Some of it gets kept for us, but some of it goes out to other people. And that becomes an example of God's love in us. If the world thinks that God does not love them, then I think that's a big marker of, uh, against the church. So the church should be showing them th- that God does in fact love them with a, with a love that they don't even understand, with a love that seeks to change them, a love that seeks to transform them. And so we as a church, you know should be busy loving each other and loving the world, showing them the loving Father that we serve. Amen? Let's pray today. Father, we praise you. And uh, this is a tall order, Lord, because, you know, of course, we love our kids and we love our spouses and we love our friends, but there's people out there that are hard to love, Lord. You always bring them into our lives and there's, like, oh, there's that person again. And, And Lord, I'm not making light of that. I mean, that's seriously what you do. And Lord, there are enemies we have. And then you tell us to love them too. But you remind us that the world knows that we are Christians, not by the names we proclaim, but by the love that we show in the name we proclaim. All of us have the capacity to love outside of Jesus, but there's a special love that comes through you to to, to others, through us to others. And that's what we wanna be today, Lord. We don't wanna be murderers of our, brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't want to be murderers of the world. If they hate us, Lord, that's okay. But we don't want to return that hate for hate. We want to return love for that hate, that they might be convicted of their hatred and turn to find Jesus. Lord, this is not easy, but I know in you, all this can be done. I think about the people in the room right now, Lord, and I don't know where they're at and I don't know... If there was a gauge of one to 10, I don't know where they'd number themselves in this sermon, Lord, but I know for me, I find myself being a one more often than I want to admit and I need your help to keep loving in spite of my own feelings, my own emotions. Lord, I know my emotions, and my feelings are fleeting. They come and go. One minute they're you know, happy, then angry, then sad, then this, and then that, and just, but Lord, the truth of your word is constant. And so I pray today, Lord, that you would take this room full of murderers, forgive us, and make us more like you and less like Cain. We love you, Lord, and we praise you, and may you receive all of the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church. Oh, Kristen has an announcement. Go right ahead.